All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 2 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 17 of chapter 1. And it says, I love this story. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this amazing story of your unrelenting grace in our lives. We thank you for your constant rescue and your enduring patience as we slowly, like through quicksand, grasp your holiness and your love and your everlasting grace in our lives. Thank you that our standing is not based on us this morning, but based on you. That we are favored, not because we earned your blessing, but because you blessed us because Jesus was favorable and obeyed perfectly on our behalf. So Lord, capture our hearts, shock us by this story. It's insane. And uh, Lord, just change us from one degree of splendor to the next this morning. In your mighty name, Lord, we thank you for your church. Thank you that you save in all different kinds of ways. And Lord, a thousand different people have a thousand different stories of how you rescued them, but we all have one thing in common. And we all say this morning, salvation belongs to the Lord. That is all our story, that it was you from beginning to end who did it. Thank you, Jesus. We are saved. We are set free. We have been brought from death to life. So we love you and thank you and praise you. Uh, bless our brothers and sisters who gather all over the city, all over the Central Valley. Be close to them this morning. May they know your grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Francis Thompson, the poet said, and you might recognize this line, the hound of heaven has one mission, and that is to track you down, to magnificently defeat you, and to bring you home. Thompson would write in that poem about his own story, I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him. 
down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Thompson fled God, as is so true of our story. But God, hounding him from heaven, gave long pursuit, as he would write, with strong feet that followed after him and didn't stop. You have magnificently defeated me. Is that not like the best description? And my own will and my pride and my arrogance and my sin and my bigotry, you've defeated me. The story of Jonah shows us that we can run. We can always run, but we can never hide from his love and grace. Sure, yeah, run, go to Tarshish, but you can never hide from his love and grace. In Hebrews 4.16, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. It's there, but we discover it, grace and help in the time of need to draw to him in confidence and boldness. So today I want to look at this section, chapter two, in three parts. I just, I had read that quote and I just think it breaks this chapter up perfectly. The hound of heaven has one mission, point one. Point two, to track you down and magnificently defeat you. And point three, to bring you home, to bring you home. Point one, the hound of heaven has one mission. A little background for us in this book of Jonah. Jonah's a weird book. All the other prophets open the same way. And God spoke to or through Amos, or God spoke to the prophet, and they gave the words of God to the nation. But this story opens the same way, and yet Jonah is a narrative. It's a story that we are told. And Jonah represents the people of God, and we realize that he is not the best person, that Everything in this book is upside down and extreme. It's a great fish. It's a great storm. It's a great, you know, everything is heightened. It's a great city that Nineveh is. And this book is being aimed to critiquing the tendency in God's people towards being judgmental, towards being prideful, towards being arrogant, towards being thinking that, oh, we get grace, but they don't. That, oh, we get God's forgiveness, but those people, they don't deserve it. And it's a critique on that. These stories have become so familiar that they can wash over us. And we have to see it with new eyes, like we're reading it for the first time. It's a storied version of the gospel. It's a shocking display of God's grace. Like it's a story of God's man, God's person, you know, being sent. And he's like, no, God, screw you. I'm going away. And then everything goes to hell around him. Like people are going to die around him. And he's like, throw me in. And he gets thrown into the sea. And then he's like, finally, I'm done with this call. And then a fish swallows him. And we'll just see how it goes on and on and on. And when, at the end, I just want to draw our attention to the fact. Well, I'll just do it now. I had this at the end. But we get this whole chapter two. He's like, I've found your grace, God. Salvation belongs to you. This whole wrestle for three days and he spit out on the ground. It says in chapter three that Nineveh was a great city. It took three, mi- or, uh, three days to preach for. 
one day. So he like, he's like, you know what? That's good enough. And then he goes and he sits and he waits for God's judgment to come. And so God obliterates Jonah, right? God wipes him off. God's like, I'm done with you, Jonah, you hard-hearted person. I sent a whale. I sent a storm. I sent all this. I'm done with you, Jonah. No. He keeps going after him. Because here's the story of Jonah. It's not ultimately about the rescue of Nineveh. That happens. But ultimately, it's the rescue of Jonah. It's the rescue of you and me. And so Jonah represents these people. So Jonah sent to warn Nineveh of their evil, and these people were evil, you guys. Talked about in Stockton, I'll be brief, but they would, were the cruelest people in history up to that moment. They would skin people alive, and then they would bury them up to their neck, and then they would nail their tongues into the ground so that they would slowly die of thirst. They would make families carry the heads of the patriarch of the family on poles and do some crazy parade through the city. It was a way to show, don't mess with us. Very cruel, and they boasted about it. They boasted about rape and pillaging. And the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, are uh, directly to the west. And so they were the first to encounter Nineveh when they went on the warpath. So in verse 1 and 2, Jonah's told to go to Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't do it. In fact, he went in the complete opposite direction. You can't, in fact, get any further opposite than the city of Tarshish. Biblical scholars say it's literally the last known port of the known world. The rest was open water at that point. So we literally, God's like, go. He's like, no, I'm going the furthest possible way a human can go away from what you called me to do. Why? A lot of people think it was fear, right? Man, you send a guy in to you know, a natural enemy of a people and you say, hey, you guys are bad. You, God's going to judge you. And they're like, oh, is that what you think? Well, we find out that's not really his issue, that he was afraid that they were going to kill him. He had a problem with the job, but a greater problem with the one who gave him the job. He knew God's mercy was great. He would have went if he knew God was going to fry these fiends, right? Nothing would make Jonah happier if Jonah's sworn enemies were obliterated, he would have gotten a first row seat to watch it happen. And in fact, that, that's what he thinks is going to happen. Jonah knows if he preaches God's word to them that they may actually repent and believe. And if they do that, God will do the very thing which angers Jonah the most. God will actually forgive them. In his audacious, scandalous love, he will let them off scot-free. And Jonah can't stomach that kind of grace. In fact, he says that in chapter four. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were forgiving. I knew this was going to happen. We find out that Jonah appears somewhere else in the Old Testament. And as he's getting started, he's called to prophesy to Jeroboam II, who was a very wicked king, that God was going to expand his borders. Jonah was sent to preach a message of grace to a wicked king. And guess what happened? God expanded his borders. And God blessed this wicked king. And he lived a regular, long life. And there's something in Jonah that goes, that is just not right. And he mistook God's patience as giving them time to repent. 
and is not just saying and okaying their sin. But Jonah here, he's called to preach this message of grace, and he's done it before, and he's seen the fallout from it. And so now he's called to go, okay, it's one thing to go to your people and preach to Jeroboam II. It's one thing to go and, you know, preach to a, a king who's blood of your blood and flesh of your flesh. And it's one thing to say, okay, God's being compassionate to us. We are his covenant people. It's another thing to your hated enemy to say, I want you to go and preach that message to them. And that's where Jonah's line is. He's like, no, there's no way I'm not going to do it. Jonah did run because he was afraid the mission would fail. He was afraid the mission would succeed. And this is the best. This is one of our, our lines that we say from this study. He cannot trust God to be unmerciful. He cannot trust God to be unmerciful. And one of the hardest things about God, to be honest, is his willingness to forgive and love and restore those who I have decided deserve the exact opposite. And that happens to us as Christians. That's like crazy. Do you ever read 1 John? I'm reading through 1 John right now. Whoosh! It's gnarly. There's no like gray. He's not like, hey, if you say you love God, but you don't like your brother because they did this, you know, to you. It's good. He's like, no, if you say you walk in me and other people are saved by my grace and they walk in me and you say you're saved by my grace and you walk in me, then we got to walk together. There's no other way. The ultimate object of God's rescue isn't ultimately Nineveh in this story. It's Jonah and it's us. The Jewish people, this is so awesome. We shared this with Stockton on Yom Kippur. Every year, read the book of Jonah and they say together in unison, I am Jonah. Every year on the Day of Atonement, they read the book of Jonah and they say together, I am Jonah. Might be a good habit. Why? Uh, a rabbi said two reasons. He said to remind themselves of the tendency to think God's love and, and grace is just for them. That the blood sacrifice is only for them and not open to others. And second, to remind them of God's relentless pursuit to bring them back to that humble, grateful relationship with himself despite arrogance and pride. And so they say they read that story on the day of atonement, on the day of that sacrifice, on that day of Passover to remind themselves, I'm so similar to Jonah. The Hound of Heaven's one mission. What's next in Jonah's story is by far our biggest shock yet. Although, as an amazed John Calvin wrote, the event is recorded as though it were an ordinary thing. You know, he's reading this story and you're like, and you imagine, right? Jonah is in the storm and he's with these pagan sailors. And this is in chapter one. And the pagan sailors, he's asleep on the boat. He keeps going down, down further. He, you know, goes down to Joppa. Then he's going to go down to Tarshish. Then he goes down to the boat. Then he goes down into a great sleep. Very beautifully written story. And then the sailors are running around and they're like, what is the storm called? And they're praying to their gods. They're praying to their idols. They're carved images. And they're like, they're not doing anything. And so then they cast lots and they're like, wow, it's this guy, Jonah. They wake him up. Wake up. Oh, you sleeper. What's going on? He's like, yeah, I ran from God, the God who made the heavens, the earth and the sea. And they're like, do you hear yourself? You're running from the God who made the sea. And so he's like, yeah, I disobeyed. Throw me over and everything will be good. They're like, no, we're not going to have your blood on our hands. He's pagans. 
So they begin throwing all their cargo off their ship, their livelihood, they're doing everything. And it literally says narratively, the ship was thinking about breaking apart, like the ship itself is a character. The ship is like, I can't even bear this guy. I think I'm done with him. Like I've been shaped, I've been cut, I've been planked, I've been oiled, I've been built and put for a purpose, and I play my purpose, and the ship itself is like, this guy won't play as people, even to himself as a prophet. Idolatry was the source of his own sin. He thought it would be better to disobey and hold on to the things that he loved than to obey God and hold on to God. He valued what he loved, his life, his identity, his racial hatred. Now he realizes that that has kept him from the one great source of life and fulfillment and peace and joy. And so you've got this beautiful thing that he says, oh, it's not just them who committed idolatry. It's me. It's me. And that's the sin underneath every other sin. What is idolatry except making something more important than God? And remember, that could be good things. That's not just the, the hissing and booing. That's not just the, like, the scandalous prodigal son who went out and spent his life on a faraway living, sleeping with this person. It's the older brother who is on the property, but will never go into the feast, saying, I've earned this. I know the way that the world should work. I want to prove my, I want, this is how I see the world. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live that way. Idolatry is anything that is more valuable to us. Is there anything in our lives that if we lost it, we would feel life wouldn't be the same? Like worth living. Like, I'm not talking about loss and loss is terrible. And it's like, we roar at the curse. We roar at the curse of death. It's horrific. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But is there something that if you looked at in your life and you're like, if I lost this, my life would be over. I've had that. I've had that. And there's so much bondage to that because what are you doing? If you get it, you find it so fulfilling. And there's like such depression and discouragement. Or maybe you feel like, well, maybe there's another level. So you keep trying. Or maybe you get it and now you've got to keep it. And now you're in competition with others. It's a life of slavery as the Bible tells us. Idolatry is the life of slavery. And so those who cling to worthless idols run away from God's grace for them. So this amazing thing happens to Jonah. So we ask, what do you want more than God? One of the Hebrew words for worship or related to worship is glory or kavod. We talk about this. It means weight. What do you give more weight to in your life than God? Is it the opinions of people? That happens if you seek their approval. Like what you think of me matters more than what God thinks of me. That's a struggle that I'm giving glory to that over glory to God. Is it, am I giving weight to the control that I can have in this life? You know, that I can juggle, you know, 10,000 plates and keep them all in the air. And then when they all come crashing down, or is it, can I sit back and can I give weight to the fact that God is sovereign sitting on his throne and that he's good and that he's marshalling every atom in the universe to bring about the furtherance of that glory and my good and my joy. Here's what uh, Martin Luther wrote. He said, to whatever we look for any, any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that I say is really your God. 
And so Jonah came to the place and he's like, oh, I haven't been grabbing hold of your grace because I've been holding on to my own life. I haven't been grabbing on and like drinking that 180 proof cocktail of your amazing grace because my hands are full, filled with worthless things. And he realizes that and he lets go. Bring us home, verse nine. And this is so awesome. But I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Guess where he is? Is he out on the land? He's in the belly. That is the deliverance. Isn't that so much more transcendent than a change in circumstances? Isn't that what like God is after in us? Isn't that like he's still pushing octopus beaks out of the way, having the gastric juices on him, and he begins to worship. He doesn't know if he's getting out. This isn't an arm bar to get God to do what he wants. He says, I get it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's up to you. In fact, this is such a pivotal place in the Bible. Scholars say this is the entire theme of the Bible right there summed up. It is the most concise theme of the entire Bible. People say this is the crux, right? Not in, it's like the hinge that, you know, the Bible is all about salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the message of the whole Bible. There's three kinds of people. Irreligious, those who've been born again, those who've been saved. Irreligious and religious people are very similar, more similar than we think. We think that, you know, the irreligious are like, you know, I don't want anything with God. I, I'm making up my own morality. I'm making up my own way. But it's a way that they keep themselves from God, like the prodigal son. The religious, they say, I will obey God. I'll do everything that he says, and I'll be good enough, and I'll make myself acceptable to him. But guess what they're doing? They're keeping their distance from God. There's never that desperation and that plea that has to come about as a Christian that has to come where you're like, only Christ. Where Christ wakes up your heart and you're like, I need Jesus. I need him. I have no hope in God of the world except Jesus. Like that has to happen. That desperate coming to that end, that, that place of like, I need rescue. I can't save myself. Like, I'm hopeless without God of the world. Wait, wait, I can't. Can you like, think about it. You're in the belly. Can you steer the fish? Can you grab the whale? Can you steer him up? Can you swim out from the depths and hold your breath long enough? Can you kill the beast from within? You're doomed. You're in a tomb that is keeping you alive enough to find grace. That is like my story. I'm in a tomb long enough to discover God's grace. Like salvation is of the Lord. And what's beautiful about that is he gets to pick who he saves. If it's all him and he does it from beginning to end, then guess what? I can't be mad at the Ninevites if he decides that he wants to give the same grace to them that he gave to me. I can't be mad at my brother who slighted me because God washed him in the blood. He's his blood-bought bride. I can't. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Religious people believe salvation belongs to themselves. Irreligious people don't believe they need salvation. Gospel people understand salvation belongs to the Lord. 
What is grace? As Gospel Tom says, it's demerited favor. Undeserved. It's a gift by an unobligated giver. Do you ever think about it? I get too familiar with grace. If you give a gift to your child, your child and your child was rebellious and you still give them a gift and he's hateful to you, but you still take care of them, they are an undeserving recipient, but you're still an obligated giver. You're supposed to take care of your kids. On the other hand, if you got together and, you know, it's your coworker's birthday and you're like, got a gift for them of appreciation just because you love them and they're super helpful, that might be an unobligated gift, but they are a deserving recipient. It's when both are true. Like, have you ever had a bad neighbor who is just an absolute jerk? They're rude. They call the cops on you because for crazy reasons, they purposely dump their leaves into your yard. And on and on, there's animosity, mean looks, flip you off. It's just this tension that's always there but you find out that they're sick and you go and take care of them and they're still resentful and you keep taking care of them and they can't work so you pay their bills so that they can keep the lights on and heat in the home and you do their yard and you don't throw the leaves in, that's an unobligated giver to an undeserving recipient and that's the grace of God. We are both those things. We are both those things. When we were dead, when we were rebels, Christ died. But we didn't deserve God's grace. He wasn't obligated to give it to us. His holiness would be satisfied to cast us out into the lake of sea, or the lake of fire, the lake of the sea, sea Galilee. But he's rich in mercy, and he's rich in grace. And we're sending abound. His grace hyperabounded. And he keeps giving it super abundant and it never stops and it will never tap. You know how you watch the coffee pot, the water go down and you're like, okay, I can get a cup now because now it's not too strong, but it's not too weak. You can watch his grace and it never moves, never decreases, never runs out, never empties. It's just always infinite to you. God getting you to a place where we can see that is often the storm and the whale that he sends. To not only see it, but feel it and understand it can be a pretty painful process. No joke will feel like somebody is doing surgery on you and forgot the anesthesia. I mean, that's, is it, remember Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis writes about Edmund, is it, I think, who's like a dragon now because he lusted after gold. And Aslan comes in, where he is, and he begins to tear with his claws the dragon skin from him. He says, it was so painful, I wanted him to stop. But like underneath, he was like the flesh of a baby. God does that in our lives. He wants, again, not angrily to take away our freedom and strip us of that, but to affectionately set us free from our slavery that we're still often addicted to. Charles Wesley, in his remarkable hymn, said, And can it be that I should gain? And here he describes his own conversion and essentially that of every sinner. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. 
My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that's the freedom offered to all and made available to all by God's relentless pursuit through the storm of Jesus Christ. For just as Jonah in Matthew 12, 40 says, was three days and three nights, this is Jesus talking in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Both in Jonah and the New Testament, three days and three nights reflects the idiom from Hebrew culture, which counted any portion of the day as a full day. Jonah may have been inside the fish for the same length of time as Jesus was buried in the heart of the earth for an evening and all the next day and a few hours the next. But Jonah's foreshadowing of the burial and resurrection of Jesus was so strong that Paul would declare how Jesus was buried in 1 Corinthians 15, 4 and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with which scriptures? Only twice in the Old Testament is this three-day element prophesied here in Jonah's story and less clearly in Hosea, which was written just a generation after Jonah's time in ministry. In Hosea, a passage God's people say collectively, and this is beautiful, a beautiful pairing. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him in Hosea 6.2. Taking together Hosea's prophecy along with the statement of Jesus, we again see the significance of Jonah's life intertwined not only with Christ, but also with our, would cite Jonah's story while he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. I'm sure they talked about the story of Jonah and they're like, what? Mind blown, that's crazy. Later that night, when Jesus met with a large group of disciples, he would likely refer to Jonah once more as he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures and declared to them that everything written about me and the law of Moses must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 44 to 45. They'd be like, that's in Jonah? What? It was there the whole time. It was in front of her eyes. What? Mind blown. The guys on the road to Emmaus, they like run seven miles. They're like, did our hearts not burn within us? That's a, when Jesus declared in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jonah's story, he would say, is about me. When Jonah was feeling death's approach in the depths of the sea, he had evidence of a typically limited Old Testament understanding of the afterlife when he instinctively spoke of sinking into Sheol, a place of death, and the land whose bars closed upon me. But we know better. For our Savior Christ Jesus not only abolished death, but also brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10 Christ's resurrection made clear forever by our true and thrilling hope of eternal life, which is ours for the taking, all by faith. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jonah was cast out into the sea because he ran from God, because he hated people. The greater Jonah was sent by God to a people that hated him, and he kept running after them and towards them. The storm in the whole Bible represents chaos. It represents wrath. It represents judgment. And here these pagan soldiers are standing on the deck. They have no idea. They're, they're praying to false gods. And Jonah says, throw me in and I'll be calmed. And part of it is to run away from his calling to go into the place of death. Not because he cared, but because he didn't want to go. And yet the greater Jonah, Jesus, said, throw me into the sea, into that place of wrath. And as he was thrown in, the sea was stilled. 
the wrath settled forever. That there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That it's gone, it's obliterated, it's been stilled. That he went down into the depths, the bars closed to him in Sheol, the place of death. But that he took the keys out of the things of death and he rose in victory and he stomped on the head of the serpent and he rose that third day. And he came and he preached good news to a people, not reluctantly, but passionately to his enemies, to the Gentiles, to the people who didn't want anything to do with him. And he showed himself for 40 days and he said, there's a bigger world here. Let's get these guys sent out and let's tell people about the grace of God all over the world. And he said, guys, you guys can't do this on the own, so I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit himself to come live inside of you. In the resurrected life, he made a way where the Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon us, but comes into us in that regenerated heart. And then we start to look like Christ as we abide in Christ and we obey him because we love him because he first loved us. He's not after our obedience. He has after a whole new kind of obedience, a whole new kind of life, a kind that's like desires him and wants to make him known, that cares about his glory, that cares about his name being hallowed, that wants to see him and his name spread and the good news spread wherever we are. Being put into the belly of the whale can coerce your obedience. Seeing Jesus went into the real belly of the whale is what creates desire in your heart for him. That's the gospel. Stirring our affections. So we should say, like on Yom Kippur, I am Jonah. And be warned that those tendencies are in me. You should see in Jesus, though, that he's the greater Jonah and worship. And that's not the end of the story. Because again, Jonah gets up and he's right back to his old ways. And so we'll keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unending, relentless grace in our lives. You're not obligated and yet you give. We're not deserving and yet you never stop. Melt our hearts, Lord. Man, you took the only storm that could really take us out. That's the only one that could really do us in. Was facing up to your wrath. Was facing up to that chaos and that judgment. And you were thrown in so that, Lord, I might be rescued. So that I might find you like those pagan sailors. So, Lord, keep going after us. Be stronger than our apathy. Be stronger than our pretended strength. We just declare, you are good. Lord, we think of Jonah. He kept mentioning the temple over and over. And the way he saw your grace is that the temple was the Ark of the Covenant that held the law. That was the standard to which you held the whole nation. One he had fallen short of, but that covering on the Ark was called the mercy seat. And he could rejoice because it was sprinkled in the blood of another that satisfied the demands of the law that he had fallen short of. So us too, Lord, we, like Jonah, see that you are the great temple, that you fulfilled the demands of the law, that you were the substitute, a life for a life. So remember that right now, fuel our worship as we 
worship the God, the transcendent one that I am. The uncaused cause took on human flesh so that it might be broken for us. The bloodshed. So there would be no condemnation. So that we could say, for those who are in Christ Jesus, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I'm done. Kind of crazy, kind of an amazing story. And so finally they're like, Lord, don't lay this blood on our hands. They cast Jonah overboard and it says it's still as glass. The sea, the storm goes away. And the sailors immediately fall down, these pagans, and they begin to worship Yahweh. And they say, we're going to make vows and we're going to make sacrifices. Maybe one of the things they decided to cast off their boat is these little idols that they carved that were powerless in the face of the storm. And they say, okay, we're going to worship you. And I think Jonah, who knows, he hits the water. Was it a a sign of self-sacrifice? Maybe he's like, you know, I can't let other people. But I also think, in a way, it's his furthest way to run yet. He's like, he could have said, let's go back to Joppa. I've got a mission to do. Could they have turned the boat around and all of a sudden the storm stilled? Well, he's like, throw me into the water. And so he gets thrown into the water. And I think maybe he's sitting there. He's like, oh, wow, it, it worked. And then he's like, all right, guys, maybe I, you can take me. You know, And all of a sudden, this fish, you see this fin come out of the water. And you're like, and the sailors are like, oh, my gosh. And this fish just swallows him whole. God appointed a fish. That's where we pick up in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. There's a character in the novel Moby Dick who thought about Jonah a lot. He was the preacher in the story. And he said, his name was Maple. And he said, and now behold Jonah, taken up as an anchor and dropped to the sea. And to say at least this would be an awful experience to be swallowed by a creature, right? People have tried to figure this out. The temperature would have been... 108 to 150 degrees the whole time, 115 degrees the whole time. He couldn't move his arm. Gastric juices that would have continually washed over him, bleaching his skin white. I mean, you think about the smell. You've got, you know, octopus beaks, you know, that you're rolling against and all kinds of stuff. The smell would be like an outhouse in an overcrowded construction site. What was it like for Jonah inside there? Mostly it's unimaginable. What we can envision realistically is terrifying and repulsive, to say the least. But giving us an insider's take on how to survive three days and three nights in the fish's belly is not where the story is heading. It's not the purpose of the story. The focus isn't Jonah and the fish, and that's one of the things we get wrong, and all our kids' stories about Jonah get wrong. They focus on the fish. That's not the story. But the story is Jonah and God. It isn't about mere physical survival, it's about spiritual revival. C.S. Lewis reminded us in Surprised by Joy, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. We read in Psalm 103, 13, as the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him chapter 2 verse 1 then you got to underline that word then it's amazing jonah prayed to the lord his god from the belly of the fish why underline then 
Because what does chapter 1, verse 17 say? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and he's there three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Then, <laughs> after Jonah had been there three days, he prayed. It's a long time. I have done a 48-hour Halo 2 party, and I did it for a youth group. And I thought, 48 hours, that's not bad. That's like two nights. No, that's 48 hours <laughs> to try to stay up and to try to be engaged and try to play. And it was long for the kids too. And it was so hot in the house. We had like 10 Xboxes set up, projectors. And this was back in the day. We networked them all together, screaming at the top of the little, you know, playing capture the flag and all kinds of stuff. And I just remember kids like walking out, just stumbling out just to get some fresh air. Cause it's just like junior high musk. It's, it was horrible. I think we had to call in a exterminator, you know, to, to tint the house after it's done. But, you know, walking out and kids are just sleeping on the driveway, you know, just trying to get some sense of coolness in the night, you know, and I'm like, I felt like death store. And that was 48 hours. It was the longest 48 hours of my life. He's in there three days, right? And he doesn't pray. And maybe he's still trying to get out of it. Maybe he's like, I can feel being digested, you know? I can feel it. I'm going anytime, Annie, you know? But he comes to it. Deep, deep down. He laid there stubborn and unmoving for three days. And this shows you the depth of Jonah's struggle and the struggle of his wrestle. What? With that he's scared to go and lose his life? No, remember his wrestle is with the goodness and the grace of God for his enemies. That's the struggle. Could God be kind and forgiving to those who are his enemies? That's his wrestle. God, I know you're good. So often it's our wrestle. It's my wrestle. It's my greatest wrestle, actually, in my sanctification. Just to let you know. I see people and I'm like, huh, I thought my heart was better. And it's just exposed. And sometimes I see people and I'm like, oh, cool, victory. And sometimes I dream. And I wrestle in my dreams. Of all the places mentioned in the Bible where people prayed, this has to be the most unusual place, right? And finally, Jonah's desperate. And like most desperate people, he turns to God. In Psalm 34, 6, it says, In desperation, he prays like David. And this is what it says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. In desperation, he prays like Hannah. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly for Samuel 1.10. In desperation, he prays like Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear from my help. Lamentations 3.54 to 56. Have you guys ever been there where it's like, oh, I'm down. I'm like, that's all you have at that point. In desperation, he prays in Gethsemane. In Luke 22:44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And ultimately he would say, there's any other way for man to be saved, let this cup pass from my lips, but not my will, but yours be done. Wrestling in agony and desperation. In desperation, Jonah prays exactly 
as God wants us all to do in such times. James 5.13 says, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Five times Jonah mentions the extreme anguish that prompted him to pray. Then each time he comes back to trusting awareness of an amazing fact he just can't seem to get over. God has heard me and is rescuing me. We discover a two-part rhythm, don't we, in the psalm, like the surf swelling and then receding, swelling and then receding again and again. He says, my agony, and God's response, my agony, and God's response. Notice the pattern in the first of these opening lines. And I want, that's such a good picture of the wrestle. You don't just pray and you're like, I'm good. Is it so often like you pray and then like 10 seconds later, you're like, ah, the agony. You know, and then you go back to it, reminding and preaching to your heart. It is a battle to preach to your heart, especially in the belly of the whale. It is a wrestle. You've, we're going to talk about Jacob in a second who wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night because Jacob was self-sufficient all his life and he had to learn to become dependent. And guess how he gets blessed? He loses. He loses the battle. In verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, or the place of death. I cried, and you heard my voice, even in the deepest, darkest place. Jonah 2, 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. But guess who it was who cast him into the deep? He didn't say the sailors cast me in. He says it was you. Equally significant here is how Jonah says it was God, not the sailors who cast him into the deep, but it was God himself. Jonah's world may be collapsing into unimaginable calamity, but still he's enabled to see God is in control. It's so beautiful. You know, before I, I really got the gospel, I was preaching. And I preached a whole sermon on, it's a psalm, I, I forget the reference, but I know the verse. It's those who regard iniquity in uh, their heart, I will not hear him. And I preached a good law message. And people were like, oh, beep, they were cussing. They never cuss. I got them to cuss. Um, but just the law, just boom. And, and then I realized, yeah, before Christ, that was my case even as a religious person. Because what is iniquity? But something that's in our very nature when we're born. In sin, my mother did conceive me. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like it was because the one who didn't regard iniquity, but was treated as the one who regarded iniquity, that he'll always hear me. And my deepest struggle, like Jonah in the pit, and his rebellion, God is going after him with his relentless grace. Like he was treated as the one because that's what the holiness of God says. I cannot be with sin. I can't be in the presence of sin. You, my holiness is so pure, sin comes in, it's just obliterated. You know? And Jesus came and reversed that, right? In the Gospels, you've got a leper who's like, God, I know you can make me clean if you're willing. And Jesus is like, wait, what? If I'm willing? Because they've been told that they're impure that they'd already messed up their life, that they're too far gone, that the religious kids were taught by the religious leaders, by the pastors, if you see a leper, the godly thing you can do is pick up a rock and drive them further outside of the city. Throw rocks at them. 
And that became their understanding of who God was. And so when the man says, God, I know you have the power. I don't doubt that. What I doubt is if you're actually willing to come into contact with me anymore. And Jesus grabs him. You don't do that to lepers. But the purity of God is so powerful. His holiness is so powerful that it defeats all uncleanness and impurity. It reverses it. See, the whole concept was that impurity, you know, got dirty what was holy, but God's holiness is so great that it literally destroys and reverses the impurity. That's what God does with us. But crazily, and we'll get to this, like the cost, the Son of God himself had to be regarded as the one who had iniquity. When he says from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's like, God, you don't hear me when I'm calling out to you. It's the psalm fulfilled so that we could forever be heard. Because he's covered us in his blood, and his blood is effectual. His blood is like, destroys every spot and blemish. Like for all time, obliterates it for all time. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. That's why he says we open with that, like we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain help in the time of need. We don't have to come over here on our own and say, okay, I, I really want your grace, but have I done this? He says, come and get help. Come and find help. Come and find the grace you need. You can't fix yourself. You can't heal yourself. Remember, Christianity and growth and spiritual maturity isn't going from strength to strength. It's going from strength to weakness. It's realizing how much more dependent on God's grace I am every moment of every day. I think a mature Christian is one who finds themselves daily at the throne of grace. And if they can't get there that morning, they have friends who will throw them into the throne. Those are good friends. That's preaching the gospel to your friends. It's utterly beautiful. It's what this story's about. It's why it's crazy. It's why I wanted to read it. I wanted us to like have our hearts like rocked by his grace again. Jonah's the worst. Jonah doesn't repent even at the end of the book, and he gets a book of the Bible named after him. Who does that? Jonah's me. And there's nothing in here that like God's like. God just keeps patiently showing him. God keeps patiently, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another object lesson. The whale, I thought that was a big wake-up call for you, Jonah. Now I'm going to give you a plant. From whale to house plant, this story is hilarious. And uh, just he just keeps going after and after Jonah's heart to rescue. And man, does he not do that in all of our lives. And just the beautiful thing of grace is that he's so patient and he knows our story. He knows we're so slow to get it. He knows we take so much time. He knows that often he sends storms and he sends whales and we're like, finally, I've conquered. Finally, my marriage is good now. And then the next week we're like, I think my marriage is over. I don't know. You know, it's like he's so, so, so patient. But Jonah sees that it's God. And guys, this is so beautiful because he tracks us down no matter where we are to magnificently defeat us. He's so self-assured. He's like stubborn. He's so hard-hearted. He's so just like, this is the way. Like he's a Mandalorian. Where do we realize, where do we most often find God's grace? It's there, just so you know. Where do we most often find it? Wherein do we realize we have it and then draw on it once again? It's when we think we've lost it. It's when we're at the bottom. It's when we're like, oh yeah, his grace. 
Have you ever lost your glasses for me? This is how I lose my glasses. Babe, have you seen my glasses? And I can't see, so I can't find them, and I start to panic. I've got to go to work. Like, where are my glasses? I have them. I'm just not seeing very good without them. God's grace. They're there. It's there. It's never, he never pulls it away. But so often it's in that moment of depth at the bottom. That's where we discover it once again. That's where we realize, oh, yeah, you're God, I'm not. Oh, yeah, your ways are higher than my ways. Oh, yeah, you are in control. Oh, yeah, you're good all the time. God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. This verb is used several times in the book as when God appointed a plant to grow and then die in chapter 1. In each case, God orchestrated a circumstance in history to teach Jonah something he desperately needed to know. We would call this a severe mercy. The great fish is a perfect example of such a severe mercy. Now, on the one hand, obviously the fish saved Jonah's life by swallowing him. On the other hand, he's still in a watery prison. He was still sinking to the bottom of the world. As he said, the roots of the mountains have like wrapped themselves around my head, far from help. Remember the text has been depicting Jonah as descending, going down to Joppa, down to the ship, down to the depths of the ship, and then now finally he goes even further down into the very depths of the ocean. But not until he was all the way down that he comes to the end of his self-sufficiency. I wish I could learn another way. I feel like God's sanctification, this is totally not true, but one is like the easy way, and there's like one person in it. And one is like the hard way, and everybody else is in it. We're like, who's that guy? Why, doesn't he know this is the line to be in? I don't know. For me, the very things that I've held on to as things I would not let go of. God brought a storm and then a fish to swallow me so that I let go of them. Because the point, another point in the book of Jonah isn't that God is angry and trying to take away his freedom. He's trying to set Jonah free from his slavery to idols. Affectionately. Like that father who pursues with compassion his son. So Jonah's descending. It's not till he's all the way down that he comes to the end of his self-sufficiencies. These are, critical, are a critical juncture in the development of our dependence on Jesus and rescue from our pretended strength. Two ways to the belly of the beast. There's probably more, but I want to highlight two. I ask to be thrown into the sea. Jacob. Jacob was not prepared to lead the family of God until he had been forced to flee from his home, experience years of mistreatment at the hands of his father-in-law, and faced what he thought was a violent encounter with an aggressive brother, his brother Esau. It was only then that Jacob in that desperate place, who ran all his life, met with God face to face. That's in Genesis 32. And he wrestles all night with the angel of the Lord, and he's blessed through losing. What was his blessing? Two, twofold. He got a limp for the rest of his life. And I love, because as he's blessing his, his kids at the end of Genesis, he's leaning on his staff, right? He had to lean on it the rest of his life. He learned, right? The second blessing is he got a new identity. He got a new name. Jacob means Connard as heel catcher, 
thief, supplanter. And he's given the name Israel. Governed by God. God's chosen people. A whole new identity. But it was through that wrestle, it was through that struggle, it was through his own, I'm going to run and I'm going to run and I'm going to run from God and I'm going to go as hard and far as I can. I'm going to use, I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to go my way until he meets God face to face. Number two, the other way to fall into the belly of the beast, and this is really hard, is to get thrown in by others against my will. There's a story, we love it, we quote it in 2 Kings 6, 13 to 17, where Elisha is in Dothan, and he's surrounded by this army who's going to take him captive. And Elisha's servant is freaking out, and he's like, what do we do? What do we do, Elisha? Like, there's, there's an army all around us, and they've come to capture him. This whole army's encircled the city. And then all of a sudden, this simple prayer is uttered, and God opens the eyes of his servants, and it says that he sees the hills filled with chariots of fire, and the angels of the Lord of hosts way outnumbering this little group of soldiers. And he's like, oh. Okay. Dothan, this amazing place of victory, right? The angels of the Lord showed up. Guess where else we see Dothan in the book of the Bible? It's where Joseph's thrown into the well by his brothers. And there's no angels. They're there. He doesn't see them. In fact, the only sound he hears probably at that point is his own voice crying for help echoing off the well. And the sting of his brother's hatred against him. And he cries out, and he cries out, and there's not the kind of deliverance that Elisha and his servant had that day. And he's sold into slavery. He's all alone. He's in Egypt, and he's still standing up for his covenant God, like won't lay with Potiphar's wife. And he stands up for what's right, and he does what's right in a foreign land as a young man. And what happens to him? He's thrown into prison. And then these guys come in, and they're like, Oh, we had these crazy dreams and he interprets them and they come true. And he says, just one thing, don't forget me. And literally it says, and he forgot Joseph. Thrown into the sea, swallowed by the beast, by the hands of somebody else. There's not only the wrong we do and the consequences that we suffer from it. And the wrestle that we have is God pursues us in that. But he also rescues us and it's also a pit. The wrong that's done to us. But what does Joseph say? What's his story? He says, God doesn't work despite his brothers and the evil done to him. He works above it. I quote this verse a lot, and I want to just read a little fuller picture of it. Genesis 49, 19 to 21, it says, But Joseph said to them, so Jacob dies, and the brothers think they have a little meeting, they have a powwow. Uh, they're deciding whether we should form a labor union or if we're going to, you know, uh, talk to Joseph. So what happens is they say, Joseph's only being kind to us because Jacob's alive. And as soon as he passes away, Joseph's going to release the full fury of his power against us. So they go to him and they make up this story. And they're like, well, well, Jacob said, you've got to be nice to us and in honor of him. And, but Joseph said to them, this is crazy. Remember what they did to him. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This little section of scripture will preach. This is so much theology right here for how we handle people who've wounded us. Number one, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. Calls out their evil, doesn't dis dismiss it, doesn't say, oh, nothing, water under the bridge. No, he says, yeah, you did wrong, but God had a higher purpose. And he is so great and he's so good that he can take even the evil done against me and bring good out of it. That is the ultimate defeat of evil. And then he says, so do not fear, I will pray for you and your little ones. So there's care, there's practical, like, compassion. And listen, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That is a good litmus test. Because he's not just like, yeah, I forgive you, I'm going to keep my distance. He's like, hey, how are you kids doing? Tell me your story. He's like, interested. He's speaking kindly to them. He's caring about their fear. He's telling them, oh, guys, don't be. He's caring about them, and they're the ones who want. That is Jesus. That's what Jesus does in a life. That is utterly beautiful. But, man, what a journey to get there. How many whales to get there? How many nights did, did uh, Joseph cry out in the prison? Have you forgotten me? Where are you? It's been said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, you must lose your life to find your life. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground. The way up was for Joseph and for all of us, first all the way down. The usual place to learn the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. But it's not simply being at the bottom that brings to, begins to change Jonah. And this is the key. Prayer at the bottom. He turns his face and he begins to pray and he begins to wrestle. It's one thing to get swallowed and just be swallowed the rest of your life. I've known people who've hit an experience and they're in a storm. And they're in a storm for their soul. But they just come out bitter. They come out twisted, gnarled through the experience. Because they don't wrestle there. They don't turn their face to the Lord. Verse 8, and this is from the NIV, translates it the best, I think. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's grace or the grace of God for them. And this is the key verse in Jonah. It's the 24th verse. There's 24 verses before it, 23 after it. It's literally right in the middle. And it's the first question we have to ask is, who is he talking about? Those who turn from idols forfeit the grace of God that is for them. You see, he uses two concepts in that verse. Idolatry, which makes you think immediately as the reader, he's talking about the pagan sailors who were praying to their little idols. In chapter 1, they had their little idols praying for deliverance. But then he also uses the covenant word in Hebrew, kesed, which is often translated grace or steadfast love or loving kindness, covenant love. It was God's special love for his children. And Israel only thought about that kind of love in terms of themselves. So you've got idolatry, which makes you think of pagan sailors or the Ninevites, but then you've also got the hesed, which makes you think Jonah is talking about himself, since after all, he's the one praying for deliverance. Scholars say that in that verse, something remarkable just happened. Jonah has applied the sin of idolatry to all 